Welcome to Eternal Life. Seven questions that every intelligent skeptic should ask about Jesus of Nazareth. This is a special free podcast series that is created for anyone who genuinely seeks truth, but who sometimes struggles to believe in some of the miraculous and supernatural elements of the Christian faith. This is a safe place where you can belong without having to believe, as we aim to objectively explore the logical, historical, and academic facts and circumstances that surround the life of Jesus, whom many call Christ. My name is Rory Vaden, and I'm not a pastor or leader of any religious organization. I'm actually a researcher, a New York Times bestselling author, and a Hall of Fame business speaker who has spent a lifetime wrestling with these very questions in my own personal life. I've simply decided to share my findings here so that if I should die before my kids become old enough to understand this, that my two young sons would have documentation for the rational reasons why daddy has come to believe in miracles, a resurrection, heaven, and the story of Jesus as Messiah. I'm glad you're here. Let's explore the evidence. What is your strategy against death? I mean that seriously. What is your strategy for dealing with, defeating, or overcoming death? What is your philosophy about death? What do you believe about what happens after death? Ironically, this is probably one of the most important, if perhaps not the single most important questions for you to answer during your life. And yet, many of us, speaking at least for myself, my friends, my family, many of the people that I know and interface with, many of us spend a shockingly little amount of time thinking about or answering or even having any crafted philosophy at all about what happens after we die. And to me, from a logical standpoint, you put all religion and spirituality and theism aside, from a purely logical standpoint, this seems like an important question, one that we should spend a little bit of time thinking about because one thing that I know is that 100% of humans that have ever lived have also died. <laughs> Death has a 100% success rate. There is nobody that death hasn't gotten, right? Like nobody who is still on this planet who once was born, who is still here now hundreds or thousands of years after they've been born. Everybody is gone. They have all died or disappeared or died and disappeared. And so there's a pretty high likelihood that you and me and everyone we know is going to die sooner or later. And I don't mean to be morbid about that, but I do mean to present you and to present myself with the sobering reality that we're going to die. We're not going to be here. We are at some point, our bodies in their current form, in this current place, are going to cease to exist in the way that they exist now. And so my question is, what is your strategy for that? 
what exactly do you believe about the afterlife? Do you believe in reincarnation? Maybe you do. If you do, though, why? Like, what evidence is there for reincarnation? What logical or academic or scientific support beyond just your own personal convictions, beyond your own feelings, beyond your own instincts, beyond your own emotions, what evidence is there to support that that's real? I'm not saying that you have to have evidence for that. All of us, of course, you, myself included, we are all welcome to have whatever beliefs that we choose. But for me, as an analytic, not somebody who's a pastor, but as someone who is a critical thinker, someone who is logical, someone who is systematic and pragmatic and practical, I just am curious to know, is there any evidence for what you believe? And what is the evidence for what you believe? Maybe you believe in heaven. So what evidence is there for that? And how do you get into heaven? And is heaven really real? If there is a heaven, how confident are you that you are going to get in, <laughs> right? And what is that based on? So a lot of people, you know, I've, I've had these conversations, right? Anecdotally here, I'm, I'm speaking, but I've been around for more than 40 years in my life and have had a lot of, again, I'm, I would consider myself a critical thinker, somebody who explores difficult and tough topics. And so as I've asked people, you know, like, how do you get to heaven? A lot of people will say something like, well, you just have to be a good person, which there's a big part of me that goes, yeah, I, I buy that. That makes sense to me. Like sort of intuitively, it seems like if you live a good life, if you're a good person, that you would maybe be rewarded with more life beyond life or life after death or or eternal life. But But how confident are you in that? The other question that I, I struggle with, and this is maybe just my logical, rational mind, like call me critical, but how good is good enough? If getting into heaven means you have to be a good person, then I can't help but ask, and maybe you don't think this way, but I'm just sharing with you like how I process it. I go, well, okay, then where is the dividing line exactly of who is good enough and what is good enough? And obviously, you know, selfishly, I want to know which side of that line do I fall on? And then also who is the judge of that, right? And so maybe we'd say, okay, well, God's the judge. So maybe you believe in God, but but maybe you don't believe in God at all. And so then that begs the question, what do you believe? Have you even really thought about it? And And I want to say, I don't think you're a bad person if you haven't thought about it. I think it's easy to go through life without thinking about this. It's a morbid question, right? It's a difficult topic. It's it's not like any of us wake up and go, let's spend my day today pontificating what's going to happen to me when I die, (laughs) right? Like there's a million things that are more exciting and more entertaining to do than that, but it doesn't change the fact that this is perhaps the most poignant and important and powerful and significant question of your life, which is what happens after you die? And if it is about just being good, then how good is it? And am I good enough? And who is the judge of what is good? And then also what happens to those who are not quite good enough, wherever that line is, which, you know, at least for me, doesn't seem clear. I've never had anyone be able to articulate clearly what that is. It's like, well, you follow the law, but 
A lot of people don't agree with every law that there is. And every country has different laws and every state, every county has different laws, and at least in the U.S. And so you go, well, I don't know that it's really law. Like there's a pretty big gray area there. Surprisingly, I find that this is not that clear. In fact, I have even found that there are people who believe in heaven as well as people who don't believe in heaven. And there are people who are spiritual and there are people who are not that spiritual and not very many of any of those people are all that clear on who gets into heaven and who doesn't. And how do you get there and how do you not? And even fewer people still, fewer people even yet still have any type of clear picture of what heaven is or where it is, or what does it look like, or what is it like, and what do you do? And so, as I've wandered around the earth for 40 plus years, I've started exploring some of these questions, some of these answers, right? Not because I care to be a pastor or a spiritual teacher, I do not. That is not my calling. It's not how I have spent the majority of my life. It's not a part of my profession. Yet, I can't escape, my mind cannot escape these questions to go, well, what's the resolution here? I mean, is is this really all there is? And in my search for some of these answers to some of these questions, I have discovered that Christianity, as documented according to the Bible, has clear answers. I'm not going to go so far here to tell you that they are right. My goal is not to tell you what is right. I want you to decide for yourself what is right. But what I do feel confident in telling you is that Christianity, according to the Bible, not according to churches, pastors, religions, but as according to the Bible, historical manuscripts, they provide clear answers, crystal clear answers on who gets into heaven, how you get into heaven, and what heaven is like. And so what I want to encourage you to consider, just as a fellow human, as a fellow citizen of civilization, I just want to encourage you and I want to invite you to go, if you're not 100% crystal clear on how death after life works or how life after death works or doesn't work. If you're not 100% clear, then I want to just invite you to stick around and be open-minded or just be open to hearing what I believe is very, very clear answers in terms of Christianity. Now, you may not agree with them and that's totally your prerogative, right? My goal here is not to convince you of anything. What my goal, as I shared in this dedication, is to do is really to lay out for my own children, my own sons, why I've come to believe what I have come to believe. And honestly, when they become grown men, they may choose to believe something else. That's not a choice that I can control. It is a choice that they control. But I couldn't help but think that if somehow I died or if something happened to me between now And when they become grown men, when you, Jasper, and when you, Liam, become old enough to wrestle with some of these questions yourself, I couldn't accept 
the idea that if I were not around to talk to you about it, that I wouldn't have at least left behind a documentation of my own journey, an exploration for facts, a determination of sequencing and exploration of archaeology and history and logic and rationale. And so that is what this is. That is why I've put this series together. And I feel confident saying Christianity provides clear answers. Now, you don't have to agree with them. You certainly don't have to like them. You don't have to accept them. But if you don't have complete clarity, and if you're not completely confident in eternal life based on what you believe now, then I would just encourage you to finish this series, to just go through it. And just at least you will have one set of ideology that has a clear potential offering. And you can evaluate for yourself whether or not you believe it, but at least you'll have something that's clear. Now, you may have found something else on your own. Again, talking to my sons here, but I'm talking to you too. You may have found something else that works for you. You maybe have found something else in your life that you go, I'm 100% confident this is how it works. I'm 100% clear this is how it works. I'm totally secure. I have every bit of evidence to believe that it is real and true and accurate. Or you've just made a decision that evidence is not that important to you. And you go, I don't need evidence. I just believe what I believe. And if that's you, that's totally fine. Like that's your prerogative. But if you're not, or if you're open-minded to exploring, then I just want to encourage you to stay here. Now, I want to be clear up front. When I say Christianity, I want to make sure that you understand that I'm not talking about religion, quote unquote religion, meaning I'm not referring to the infrastructure of churches and pastors and rituals and programs. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the buildings and you know, I'm not talking about songs. I'm not talking about the practices and the or nor the people who we often think of when we think of religion. When I refer to Christianity, what I will be referring to for the remainder of this series is I'm referring to ancient texts and historical manuscripts that surround and point to and document the life of an individual person named Jesus of Nazareth, more commonly known as the Bible. The Bible is not a fiction book. It is not made up, right? Whether you believe it or not is up to you, but it is not a fake story or a creative story or an imagined story. At least that's not the intent of it, right? That, that's not how it was assembled, which we'll talk about where did the Bible come from and what is the Bible and how did the things that are in the Bible even get included in there? We'll, we'll talk about that because that's some of what I've explored as an intelligent skeptic, right? I am critical, right? I'm sorry. I just, I don't take people's word for things. I like to investigate and explore. So I'll, I'll share some of that journey with you. For the purpose of this conversation and for this series, the Bible is my source of truth. And so if you wanted to take issue with me, you're welcome to do that, of course, or may or may not be available for a response, but where you would be welcome and invited to take issue is on the Bible, right? That's where I'm speaking from. So I'm not working on interpretations from 
you know, like pastors and stuff. Although I do, there are some third-party references and I'll point, I will point those out. So that's what Christianity at least is for me. The definition is as it's contained in the ancient texts and the historical manuscripts that make up the Bible. But I have to also say this, while Christianity and the Bible are very clear, very clear about what happens after death, how do you get into heaven, who gets into heaven, okay, it's very clear on that. I have to also say, like, I couldn't tell you that I also struggle to believe some of the things in the Bible. It has a lot of things that are, again, I'm just being honest here. They're hard for me to believe. Things like miracles, resurrections. What's a resurrection? Dead people coming alive. Global floods. The story of the creation of earth. Even just the idea of heaven, like, you know, there's a part of me spiritually that just wants to believe it, but there's a part of my humanity that just goes, I don't even know what that would be like, right? And God, right? So some of these things are just hard to believe. I have to be honest and say that some of those things and some other things are difficult for me to believe. And I hope that is also an invitation to you to go, if some of those things you struggle to believe, I think that's okay. And we'll walk through some of this together. But another thing that is clear about Christianity, okay? So if you're new to this exploration of spirituality or Christianity specifically, one thing that is clear about Christianity is that it is entirely built around one central figure, a person, an actual human. This is Jesus of Nazareth, a person that supposedly walked this earth, like you and me. And we we will look at that and we will analyze and diagnose the likelihood of that, even as an assumption, that there was a person named Jesus that who actually was a real human. We'll explore that. That's part of what we're going to unpack in this series. But one of the things that's fascinating to me about Jesus is that Jesus is not just a deity, meaning he's not just a God. He's not just a spiritual figure, but according to the Bible, that Jesus is an actual person that walked this earth, which immediately, immediately separates him from all other gods, at least all the other gods that I have explored or that I have tried to, you know, at least understand. And I'm not an expert on all this, right? I have not spent an expert studying all of theology, but of the most popular religions, you know, I know I have at least a basic understanding of, of some of them, or I think I have at least a basic understanding of them. And again, as I'm trying to find answers for myself, for my life, for my family, that it is a very unique characteristic of the Christian religion that it is based on a human person, okay? There are other religions, right, that have other humans that are part of them, Muhammad, but Muhammad is a prophet, not God incarnate. So that is a dividing line of spiritual and you know realistic beliefs of how it works that Christians believe that Jesus was a human that walked the earth and that he also was a deity that he was God incarnate God as man and fully God and fully human that is a very specific distinction a very unique characteristic of the Christian faith and Jesus is the central figurehead. He is the cornerstone. He is the linchpin. He is, you could almost think of it like the bottleneck. The Christian religion all comes down to Jesus. So 
if you could disprove the existence of Jesus or if you could disprove the divine nature of Jesus or if you could disprove the resurrection of Jesus, you would disprove all of Christianity. Christianity hinges upon, it is attached to, it is unequivocally linked to the story and the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And so in order to prove all of the elements of Christianity, you must first be able to prove that Jesus of Nazareth, which many people call the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, right? You must first be able to prove that Christ existed. Further, okay, though it's not just enough to say that he was a human that walked the earth, okay? That's step one. But further, you must be able to prove that he was and is who he said he was, which was the son of God. Jesus referred to himself as the son of God, which becomes a really important part of this historical scrutiny because that is a big, audacious, bold claim. I mean, I don't know how many friends you have in your life that you know who claim to be God, right? There's some people that you know that maybe act like it or think they kind of are, but they probably don't claim to be it. Jesus of Nazareth directly, boldly, clearly, assertively claimed that he is the son of God, okay? So you must be able to prove that Jesus was real as a person. We must be able to prove that he is somehow the son of God. How do we prove that? I know that's a big question. We're gonna explore that. And then further still, you would have to prove that Jesus was murdered and then raised from the dead. If you can't prove those things, then there is no basis for the Christian faith. You could prove everything else in the Bible. Like if you could prove everything else in the Bible, but you can't prove those things. If you can't prove that Jesus lived, was a human, if you can't prove he's the son of God, if you can't prove that he died and was fully dead in human form, and if you can't prove that he resurrected from the dead and came back to life, if you can't prove those four things, then there is no proof of Christianity. There's there's nothing else to, nothing else matters because this, this Jesus is the linchpin. It's the cornerstone. It's the central point. And so that's what I discovered and that's what I started to explore. And I'm going to share those findings with you here over the course of this series. Because if you can prove those things, if you can prove that Jesus was a real human, If you can also prove that he was the son of God, if you can prove that he died and you can prove that he was raised from the dead, the only person that has ever, well, I guess that could be arguable, but let's say you prove that uh, those four things are true and that he did raise from the dead, then there would be strong reason to believe that the other elements that surround the faith would also be true. That if Jesus is in fact who he said he, was. And if Jesus did do what the scriptures, these ancient texts write, if that is true, then because he is the cornerstone of the Christian faith, 
It doesn't necessarily automatically prove everything else happened exactly the way that it is written. I mean, some of those things, uh, other things in the Bible could be up for interpretation. There's certainly room for scrutiny around them. But the central argument for Christianity and for the life of Jesus as the gateway and the path and the vehicle to eternal life is true. It is true if all those other things are true. So that is why I set out on this journey, right? Not because I was a theology major and I needed to pass a test, not because I you know, grew up in a home raised by a pastor or something, and this is what they told me, right? I wasn't, but because I wanted to know as someone who you know, I think is at least reasonably intelligent, someone I would definitely describe myself as, as a critical thinker, an analytical thinker, a pointed thinker, and someone who explores and searches for evidence in what works in all areas of life, not spirituality. Like spirituality, this this is this has not been my central focus for my life, right? This is a project, but a really, a really big project that I've spent a lot of years exploring, just like the other books and things that I have written. So what I want to present to you are seven questions every intelligent skeptic should ask themselves about Jesus of Nazareth. And these are the seven questions that I'm going to walk you through in this series. These are seven questions that I've asked myself. They're hard questions. They're difficult questions. I'm going to just share with you what my own answers and what my own research and what my own exploration has led to in answering these seven questions. Now, I want to go ahead and give you the first question. The first question I've sort of already asked you, which is, what is your strategy for death? And another rendition of that question is, is it worth the time to explore eternity? Like, is it even worth the time to explore this? That's the first question, right? Because what is your strategy for death? I mean, look, I don't know exactly how long this series is going to be. I'm going to make it as long as I think it has to and not a word longer. But I don't, I have no idea how this is going to shake out. I do know there's seven parts to this and I have documented my findings and you know thought through this and I'm making it available now to you and to my boys and to my family. But it's going to take some time, right? This is going to be however long it is for you to explore. And the first question you really got to come to a decision on is, are you going to take the time to explore eternity? Are you going to take the time to learn about death and life, specifically life after death? And is there life after death? And if so, how and when and why and where and who and and what is it? How do you experience it? And so that's the very first question. What is your strategy for death and for overcoming death? And is it worth the time to explore eternity? Like all these questions, you're going to have to come up with the answer yourself. But I want to share with you the three reasons why I think it's worth the time to look at Christianity specifically as an option, right? As a potential, you know, it's it's at least worth the time to explore this, okay? Three reasons why I think this exploration, this at least this series, if not a full-out exploration of your own about all of Christianity, is worth exploring. So reason number one is <laughs> pretty simple. This could have eternal implications for you, right? Eternal implications. So it seems like it's worth taking at least a few hours, which I presume this will probably be a few hours, maybe, maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little bit less. I don't know. But it's probably worth at least taking a few hours to explore what it is that so many people believe. So many people. Now, I don't know if you realize this, okay? But as of 2023, approximately 
billion people on the planet. So about 31% of the Earth's population and approximately 253 million Americans believe in Jesus as Christ. They are Christians. So 31% of the Earth's population, 2.4 billion people are Christians. That's what census data suggests in 253 million Americans. So that is the largest grouping of people in the world of any world religion, okay? Of any major world religion, it is Christianity is the largest. It is the biggest. That doesn't necessarily just in its own merit mean it's the best or that it's right just because a lot of people believe it. I mean, that's not enough to sell me to go, yeah, I think there's a lot of people that believe a lot of stupid stuff and a lot of people believe a lot of things that aren't true. So just because a lot of people believe it is certainly not evidence for why it is true. But if a whole bunch of people believe it, I go, that's eh, probably worth at least exploring, right? It's probably worth at least looking at. And here's the thing. You know, if Christians are wrong, then there there is no, maybe there is no afterlife at all. And so it's no big deal. Whether you believe or you're not, we're all dead. We die, game over, nothing else matters, right? So we might as well go live your life however you want to live it. Get the most out of the time that you've got here because it really doesn't matter, right? So if Christians are wrong, that's kind of the case. You know, now there are other religions that do have beliefs and viewpoints about what happens after death. And you certainly can explore those for yourself. But if Christians are right, if Christians are right, and again, Christians are clear, you can argue that Christians may not be right, but you can't argue that they're not clear. I mean, Christians as people, like they're not always clear because even Christians aren't always clear on what they believe. Even me, right? For a lot of my life, I wasn't even totally clear on all this stuff, which is part of why I'm laying it out here. So Christians can be confusing, but the Christian faith as what is documented in the Bible, which you can go read for yourself pretty much anywhere in the globe, you know, you can read it on your phone and you, it's been widely, widely produced. It's very, very clear on who gets into heaven, how you get into heaven, what heaven is. And so if Christians are right, this has eternal implications on your soul, right? Eternal implications. And I mean, just think about this. If hell is real, if hell is an actual place, Hades, right? Ancient scripture refers to it as Hades. If hell is real, and I'm not saying just yet that it is, but if it was real, wouldn't you want to do everything you could to avoid it? I mean, if it is real, you might want to pay attention to that and go, what is it? And so I'm going to just include here a quick rattling of just a couple verses in the Bible, because the Bible is my source of truth for Christianity, meaning that for me, what it means to be a Christian is held in the Bible, not by what Billy Graham says or any other pastor or like any church or anything. It's what is written in the Bible. And I'll explain later why that is, why the Bible is the source of truth or my source of truth on what it means to be a Christian. And therefore, in my case, the source of truth for my life. But here are a couple verses out of the Bible that just describe hell. Okay. So I'll just give these to you real quick. So Revelation 21.8 describes hell as a fiery lake of burning sulfur. Matthew 25.46. And by the way, if you're new to the Bible, I'll explain in just a few minutes what these references, Matthew 25.46, what does that mean and, and how does it work and what do those numbers mean? I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. But Matthew 25.46 describes hell as eternal punishment. Second Thessalonians 1.9 
describes hell as everlasting destruction. Matthew 13, chapter 13, verse 50, describes it as a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark chapter 9, verse 43, describes it as a place where the fire never goes out. Revelation 14, 11 says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and there is no rest day or night, no rest. Jude 1, 7 says they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 says, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I don't know about you, and I don't know exactly what all that means, but what I'm pretty clear on is it doesn't sound awesome, (laughs) right? Doesn't sound awesome. It sure as heck doesn't sound like a party. And sometimes people think of hell and they joke like, you know, I hope they serve beer in hell because they joke like hell is somehow fun in a party. Well, if you are a Christian, make no mistake about it. There is nothing fun. That does not sound fun to me. No rest, eternal fire, tormented day and night. No, that doesn't does not sound awesome, okay? So, again, you may not believe all that yet, but if you do, you go, it might be or or even if you don't believe it, you go, if there's a chance I could end up in that place, it might be worth me taking a couple minutes to figure out how do I make sure I don't end up there, right? At least that's what I'm thinking. I don't know if that's what you're thinking. That's what I'm thinking. Thank you for listening to this special podcast series, Eternal Life, Seven Questions Every Intelligent Skeptic Should Ask About Jesus of Nazareth. Hopefully, you'll notice that I've tried to take great care in documenting and citing references so that you can go explore the sources yourself. If you would like a consolidated copy of all of these citations, including an organized listing of all of the Bible verses that I referenced throughout the whole series, please visit eternallifepodcast.com forward slash free and I'll send it to you. Again, to grab that free resource, Just head over to eternallifepodcast.com forward slash free. Enjoy. Now, on the flip side, if eternity is actually real, if heaven is actually an accessible place, if heaven is an accessible concept, if, if heaven really is real, and I'm not asking you to believe right now that it is, I'm just saying If it is, wouldn't you spend your entire waking life being consumed with how to get there? If there is an option for eternity, if there is an option for whatever this beautiful afterlife is, isn't it worth exploring it? And then if you come to believe that it really is available to you, wouldn't you want to focus on it a little bit more? Wouldn't you want to lend a more, a little bit more of your time, a little bit more of your mind share, a little bit more of your thinking? Maybe, maybe it would affect the way that you live if it really were true. At least for me, I, I think it is. And the good news is, okay, so I'll just tell you this uh, right up front. The good news for Christians living Christianity according to the Bible is that heaven might be much easier to access than you think way easier. And a little bit of a spoiler alert, getting into heaven according to the Christian faith has nothing to do with how good you are. 
we'll explain what that is. One of the questions is how do we get into heaven? So we'll we'll talk about that. But it actually could be way easier than you think. And it doesn't mean that your life can't be fun or that you can't do wonderful things. It's quite the opposite. It means according to the Christian faith, it's quite accessible. And we'll walk through that if you're still listening by the time we get there. But we have some tougher questions that we have to answer first. There's some more fundamental things that need to stand up to some scrutiny before we get to that question. But I believe, and now I'm going to step out of character here and go to just tell you my beliefs, right? So I'm part of my goal here is, is I want to be a guide. I want to facilitate you through a logical discovery for you to come to your own conclusions. I have some of my own conclusions and I will try to step out of character when I'm sharing with you my own conclusions to hopefully separate and preserve and maintain the objective and hopefully somewhat unbiased or at least attempted unbiased exploration for you in your own journey to go through some of the very tough questions that I struggled with answering myself. So right now I'm stepping out and saying, I do believe in this now based on everything you're about to learn. And what I have come to believe about the devil is I think that the devil defeats most people, not through destruction, but through distraction. I believe that the devil defeats most people not through destruction, but through distraction. You see, if the devil can keep you focused on anything other than learning the truth, then he wins, right? If the devil can occupy your mind with anything and everything other than what it takes to get into heaven, then he wins. If the devil is real and his objective is to steal, kill, and destroy, and his goal is to harm you and to prevent you from accessing heaven, he doesn't have to hurt you. He just has to distract you from learning about heaven. And so the bar for him to win is actually pretty low. It's pretty easy because He doesn't even have to convince you that heaven isn't real. He just has to prevent you and occupy from learning about it yourself. And so that is how I think he does it. The devil defeats most people, not through destruction, but through distraction. And here's the thing that's dangerous about that is we live in a world of distraction. We live in a world with more entertainment available to us, more communication, more experiences, many things that are wonderful things, good things, right? Movies and music and the arts and books and business and ambitions and goals and marathons and kids and beautiful things of the world. But there's so much of that that it's so easy to be occupied with the things of this world that we can't even carve out a few minutes to explore eternity. And so for most of us, we don't have a confident eternal life because we're distracted. So I know that you're busy. I know that there are a lot of distractions. You could call them temptations. You could just call them beautiful blessings and awesome things to do. But I know that you don't have a lot of time. And so part of my goal here is I'm trying to boil this all down for you into a few hours, right? So that you don't have to take decades to explore and discover like I have, that you don't have to read, you know, dozens and dozens of books like many of the world's leading thinkers on this subject, but that you can listen to all of this in the matter of a few hours and that you can get the core points and that you can at least understand with clarity what Christianity is about, what it is purporting, and what evidence is there for it being real and true, not just spiritual and faith and emotional and 
clouds and harps and stuff like that. What real world evidence is there that any of this is true? And that's what we're going to talk about. But I do want to say, you may listen to all of this and at the end decide you don't believe any of it. And even though you might go, well, that would be a waste of time. I hope, and I just want to present the possibility that even if that happened, you should consider that a win because at least you would be clear on what you don't believe. Does that make sense? Right? Again, my goal is not necessarily here to convert you to believe what I believe. My goal, and this is why I shared the dedication right up front, my goal is to share with my sons my own documented journey of how I've come to believe what I believe. And I would hope, my hope is that, of course, they're my sons. I hope that they one day believe what I believe. I may not be around to convince them, and I just want them to be able to explore for themselves. And I decided to make this available for anyone who cares to show up. So even if you get to the end and you decide you don't believe any of this, I'd call that a win. I call that a win because at least you go, at least I'm clear. At least I'm clear what Christianity is, and I'm clear that I understand it, and I'm clear that I don't believe it, and I'm clear that that doesn't work for me. I'm clear. And so then you're free to go explore other things or decide you don't care to explore other things. At least you're clear. So I would consider that a win, but you would at least have a fair bit of confidence that you understand what Christianity is and what is required to be called a Christian and what that means. Now, on the flip side, perhaps you will follow this exploration of evidence that I'm about to present to you. And perhaps you will come to believe in Jesus of Nazareth as Christ, as the Messiah, which I know right now for some of you, like me several years ago, you might go, that's crazy. There's no way I'm going to believe that. There's no way I believe in miracles and uh, somebody dying and coming back to life. There's, there's no way I believe in these things, right? But I would just table that for a minute and just go, well, if you go through the evidence here and you come on this expiration, there is the possibility, right, that somehow you would maybe then believe what I believe and what billions of now, a couple billion people on the planet also believe. And if that's the case, clearly, it would be a good use of your time, right? So that's reason number one why I think that you should spend some time exploring this is because it has eternal implications. Reason number two why I think you should commit to finishing this entire series is because this might provide answers for you and a source of truth for your life. What do I mean by that? I mean that whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a believer, or not, whether you're spiritual or not, whether you're atheist or Buddhist or any other type of faith, I think for a lot of us, we can intuitively look at the world that we live in and say, something is wrong. Something is broken about the world that we live in today. Something is off. Something is missing. Something is not right here because there's so many people who are unhappy. Like, why is there, there's so much addiction, so much sexual immorality, so much anxiety, so much worry, so much suicide. There's so much pain. 
so much unexplained tragedy, so many difficult things, and not even just for people who are struggling, but even wealthy people and famous people who are, they're unhappy, they're unsettled, they're killing themselves, they're ODing on drugs, their lives are being destroyed, marriages, families torn apart. Why? There's something missing and there's something big that is missing. There's there's something absent of the world that you go, There's things aren't quite right here. There shouldn't be so much sadness, so much pain, so much heartache, so many families torn apart, so much destruction, right? There shouldn't be kids who are sexually abused, right? There shouldn't be people who are raped. There shouldn't be people who are murdered for no reason. There's something wrong here. And even if you don't believe in Christianity or Jesus or whatever, if you can look at the world and at least go, yeah, there's there's something wrong, and you're looking for a source of truth to navigate through that, then I want to encourage you to stick around. Because if you haven't looked at this topic of Jesus, if you haven't explored it and you haven't scrutinized it and you haven't asked yourself the tough questions, then this is one you should investigate. Because I personally, I'm looking for an answers that make sense of it all, right? And if it is true right? If all this Jesus stuff, if all this Christianity, if all this Bible stuff is true, then it means that there are answers for how I should live my life. And it means that there are implications in what I should do. And it means that there is a great implication to how I live my life today and during this life and what that is going to mean for eternity. And so I need to pay attention to that and go, Don't you want a source of truth for that? Not just people's opinions, not just emotions, not just preferences, not just instincts, not just a trending video on social, not these things that change like the wind, but don't you want an actual bankable, reliable, unfailing, credible source of truth for which to base your life upon? If you're looking for that, then I want to encourage you to stick around because Christianity offers that, a clear source of truth. And it may not be what you like, but it would give you something that is goes, this is, there is right and wrong. There is true and false. There is clarity about why the world is the way it is and how it operates and, and what happens in eternity. So then it makes sense, if you're looking for that, it makes sense to look at this. Part of this to me is is also intuitive about, there is this intuitive nature for us to call out to God. I mean, who in the world doesn't cry out to God when they experience pain, like physical pain or desperation or hopelessness, right? I think of the times when I've been most sick in my life. One time I was seasick in in Costa Rica and it was just, it was horrendous. It was awful. It was, it was terrible. There's been other times where I was sick after I had a hernia surgery, and then I took medicine after, and it, it made me so sick. I was in so much pain. And you go, instinctively, I cry out to God. You know, I say, God, if you're there, help me. God, if you're there, save me. How is it that we instinctively do that? I now believe. I didn't always believe, but I now believe it's because we were created to do that because we were created by the creator for 
the creator's enjoyment and for community with the creator and it, and that we have this God-sized hole in our heart that we're looking to fill. And again, you might not believe any of this is true by the time all this is said and done, but if you want a source of truth and you don't yet have one, right? What is your source of truth? What is the source of truth in your life? Is it the last book you read? Is it what you saw on CNN? Is it what you saw on Fox? Is it what you saw from Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or Rush Limbaugh or Joe Biden or what is your source of truth? Where do you anchor your life to? What can you look to and say, this is what my life is based on. This is what I know to be true. This is what I know to be real. Is it, is it science? You know, and I'm a big fan of science. Science can prove a lot of things, but you know, science also has a lot of problems, right? Scientists used to believe the world was flat. That was quote unquote true, right? We used to believe the sun revolved around the earth. That was true. That was scientifically proven and true. That's what we believe. So, but even science has lots of shortcomings and lots of flip-flops that it has made as you look over time. So what is your source of truth? If you need one or you're looking for one, you should stick around. Reason number three, the third reason why I think that you should explore this is because if the story of Jesus is real and there is a resurrection, then that means there is a heaven. And if there is a heaven, then that means that I could get there too. And that means that not only would I get to meet Jesus, but also I would get to meet and be reunited with every believer in my family whom I've lost, right? In short, if the story of Jesus is true, then it is possible, it is factual, that you will actually never have to be separated from those people that you love. And so that matters to me personally. What person do you care the most about who has died? Like in your life, who do you care most about that has died? Or who do you care most about right now that is living that you would want to spend eternity with? Who is it in your life that it would it would break your heart, it would wreck you to be separated from that person? If everything you're about to learn about Jesus is true, then it's not only just possible or likely, but it is guaranteed that if you believe this and that person believes this, that you will never be separated, that you would actually be with your loved ones forever and that you would actually be loved forever, a confident eternal life. And so if that's possible, wouldn't you want to spend a couple hours you know, to explore the option of how that might come true? So I realize I'm spending time, a lot of time convincing you why you should spend time. And, and that's probably the number one thing I want to convince you of is I want to convince you to spend time exploring this topic. I don't necessarily want to convince you that you need to believe what I believe, but I want to convince you to spend time on this topic because it has eternal implications. I mean, what could be more significant than this? All right. So that said, I want to share a, a couple disclaimers and just give you a quick overview of, of where we're going and, and what this is going to be that we can continue getting into it. But the first of the seven questions, this is where we are. You are in, you're already, we're mostly through the first question, which is 
What is my strategy for overcoming death? And is it worth taking the time to explore eternity? Okay, so let me give you a few disclaimers because this is important, right? So what we're, first of all, what we're about to embark upon is very different than anything that I have ever done. Okay, so I want to just make sure this is out in the open. All right, I don't want to pretend to be someone that I'm not. So first of all, I am not a pastor, right? I don't have, I've not been, I've never been to seminary. I don't have any theology degrees. I don't work at a church. I don't even lead a nonprofit. Um, I am not a pastor. And part of that, I think, will be good for some of you. Like some of you might go, well, I'm not going to listen to this guy because, you know, what does he know? My audience here is is not people who only listen to pastors. Like my audience is actually people who would go, yeah, I don't think I would ever listen to a pastor because I'm not sure I could trust a person. So we're going to look at evidence together. But I'm going to do my best to use through this whole series, plain non-jargon terminology. It's worth answering the question, well, who am I? I haven't really talked that much about that. And depending on who you are, you you may not even have a clue who I am in the first place. So I am a business author and speaker. So I'm an entrepreneur who is also an author and a speaker. So I am a a New York Times bestselling author. My first book was called Take the Stairs. It's a book about the psychology of overcoming procrastination and increasing self-discipline. My second book was called Procrastinate on Purpose, Five Permissions to Multiply Your Time. And in that book, we looked at you know, and studied why do so many people feel overwhelmed and busy and behind and buried, and how do you actually multiply time? How is it possible to create more time? But I was one of the youngest people in history to be inducted into the Professional Speaking Hall of Fame. I am a two-time world champion of public speaking in a contest that was put on by an organization called Toastmasters International. So, you know, my career is as a researcher, as an explorer, I am breaking down, like I have a knack for consuming massive volumes of information. By the way, I also have a, a, a master's degree, so I have an MBA, but I take massive volumes of information and I try to distill it down to just the core elements and then sort of repackage it and represent it in a way that other people can quickly benefit from. So I kind of think of myself as like a giant information sieve that you would strain like, you know, spaghetti, like a colander. I'm a sieve and I've done that a few times. So, you know, my first book was really understanding how do you become more disciplined in your life? That was Take the Stairs. My second book, which I also, by the way, created a TED Talk and the TED Talk went viral, got several million views, was all about how to multiply time and like, how do you break free of being busy? And then my wife and I built an eight-figure sales training company. We started that in 2006. We grew that to eight figures. We had a couple hundred team members. We sold that in 2018. And then we started Brand Builders Group, which is what we do today. And so what we do for a living actually has nothing to do with anything that I'm sharing in this series. Like it's completely off. We are a personal brand strategy firm. So we actually help authors and speakers and coaches, and we call them mission-driven messengers. We help mission-driven messengers to increase their reach and grow their reputation and turn their reputation into revenue, right? So we have like basically a, a consulting or training company that trains authors and speakers how to get their content out to more people. So I really don't have... The, the reason I'm sharing this here is I don't have any other outlet for this. I don't have any other place to put this. So I'm just putting this content out in the world. You know, we are very much content creators, but I've never, ever created a content piece so in depth on a topic that is related to spirituality. I'm a curious entrepreneur. I'm a lifelong student. I always am trying to critically evaluate the best 
way to solve things. I am a pragmatist. I'm a skeptic. And I think this is, is an important issue to look at. So that's why we're doing it. But part of that disclaimer, because I've not made a professional study of this, okay, it's possible. I just want to let you know that I might have minor discrepancies in things that I share, especially around pronunciation and names, right? I might pronounce words wrong. And some of, you know, in these ancient texts, some of these names and cities are like crazy compared to what we're used to seeing today. I'm sure I'll pronounce things wrong. Please forgive my ignorance on those kinds of things, right? Again, I just, I haven't made a lifelong study of this. I'm not academically trained in this topic area per se, not formally academically trained. However, I have taken a great deal of time to verify the factual stability of what I will be presenting to you. Everything that I'm presenting to you should stand up to scrutiny. I'll, I will, that's the whole point of this. So hopefully you can forgive potential minor issues like that without throwing out the major stuff, right? There's no way I'm getting the major stuff wrong here. I mean, the major stuff here is really what the focus of the conversation is about. But I just say all that to say I'm not a historian trying to debate and prove or disprove scrupulous or minute facts and details. I'm an everyday ordinary person who's laying out fundamentally agreed upon high level logical historical facts that are widely accepted, but that do provide evidence and historical support and archaeological support potentially for Jesus and the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So that people don't just have to have blind faith, right? I mean, that's part of what I'm doing here is just going, I struggle with the idea of going, yeah, just have blind faith. I need more evidence. I need more structure. I need a little more sustenance that I can just get my mind latched around. And so that's the journey I've gone on, which I'm, I'm sharing with you. The other thing that I want to tell you up front is like, I don't have anything to gain from this. I don't have a goal here of like making a bunch of money or do I don't even know what this is. <laughs> I mean, what, what I'm doing right now, I literally don't even know what this is. I'm just sharing with you you know, the notes that I've compiled over years. And so I don't have a goal here beyond what I shared in the opening dedication. My goal is to provide a documentation for my sons, for my two boys, so that one day, if I'm not here to tell them myself, they would just know. They would at least know why and how I came to believe what I believe. So I don't have anything to gain from this. In fact, I have quite a lot to lose. I suspect that some of you might even be listening to this. Some of my clients at Brand Builders Group, some of my, you know, the, the people who hire me to speak at their conventions and their company meetings, some of my readers from my other books, some of my blog subscribers, some of my other podcast subscribers, some of them are going to think I'm absolutely insane for, first of all, sharing my faith and opening up publicly about a topic which frankly, has become quite controversial these days to just share your faith. So it's a huge risk in that regard. And honestly, the thing I'm most terrified is that I have some of my closest friends are not Christians. We have people who work in our company who are not Christians, and I love them dearly, dearly. And I, my greatest fear is I just, I don't want to offend people that I love and that I'm close to. That's not my goal. But I also know that there is the risk of that happening because I'm sharing what I believe to be true and I'm I'm sharing that historical journey. And so I know that I could offend some people and that's not my goal, but it is a risk. And it's a risk that I'm willing to take because again, I think eternity is what's on the line here. 
for my sons and for you and for anyone who listens to this in the future. So I know that people are going to make fun of me. I know some of my friends and family are going to be offended. I know that I'm very likely to lose a bunch of followers over this, right? I mean, there's a bunch of people who follow me that probably just don't even want to hear or even care to know what my beliefs are and will be upset that I'm sharing them. So I know those things, but I say all that to say the reason I'm doing this anyway is because I'm not interested in money. I'm not interested in followers. I'm not interested in placating. I'm interested in truth. I'm not just trying to share my opinion. I'm only interested in sharing truth. I'm a truth seeker. I want to know what is the evidence that exists for something to be true. And so if you're someone who follows my work, I want you just to know that I will always seek truth, even when it's inconvenient and even when it creates conflict. And even if it comes at the cost of negative consequences or implications in my life, because I'm not interested in positive outcomes that aren't based on truth. So anyways, that's my disclaimer. So let me give you an overview of the series and then we'll keep rocking and rolling. So I already said this earlier that admittedly, you know, I want to be right up front with you and go, some of these things are difficult to believe and understand on the surface of Christianity. I mean, there's prophecies about a coming Messiah or a savior of the world. I'm like, prophecy, really? Like even that word to me is weird. Really? Prophecy? Uh, The idea of miraculous healings, uh, God speaking through burning bushes, God sending plagues upon civilizations, parting the sea, and then ultimately the one that matters most of all, a man predicting his own death, predicting his resurrection, and then him actually rising from the dead hard to believe on the surface. So we're going to explore it. So one thing I I also want to ask you here is if Jesus is the linchpin and the cornerstone of all of this in the Christian faith, and you're not a Christian, okay, so you don't believe or you don't yet believe, or you're not totally sure what you believe, you know, if you fall into any of those categories and you don't yet fully believe in Jesus, then my question for you, and this is the first thing I want to encourage you to get clear on is, What exactly is it that you don't believe? Okay. And I want to encourage you to write that down, right? Don't, you know, just for yourself, you're not going to share it with anybody else, but just, I think a part of the journey for yourself, getting clear on what you believe, it starts with going again, I want to just express it's okay to not believe this, right? It's this, some of this stuff is hard to believe. And, and again, you may not believe it at all when we're done either. And that's okay, but I want you to be clear and I would encourage you to go, what exactly is it that you don't believe? So do you first believe that Jesus didn't exist at all? He wasn't an actual person. He didn't actually walk the earth. Okay, so if it's that, write that down. Or maybe you say, no, I I believe there was a person named Jesus. Okay, so then the second question is, okay, do you believe he's the son of God? Do you believe that he performed miracles? Do you believe who he said he was? Maybe that's where you lose it. And you go, no, I believe he could have been this, you know, he could be the son of God. Or do you just believe he didn't rise from the dead? Or you struggle to go, yeah, I struggle to believe that somebody who died and then like came back to life. I've never seen that. I don't know anyone who has seen that. That's the part I don't believe, which for what it's worth for me, I go, yeah, I've never seen that either. Nor does anybody, nor does anyone that I know, have they ever seen that? And so that's part of what would make it compelling, right? As I go, if there actually was somebody who said they were going to die, who predicted their death 
And then not only did they predict their death, but then they died. And not only did they die, they also predicted their resurrection. And not only did they predict their death and resurrection, then they actually resurrected from the dead and came back to life and people saw them. If that's true, I'm going with that guy, <laughs> right? Like that's like Babe Ruth calling this shot you know, for the home run. I go, yeah, if somebody did that, I'm going with that guy, right? Because as much as I have struggle believing all these other things, I go, someone who did that, I go, yep, that's my guy. Like that guy's got it figured in, right? Maybe you don't believe in the resurrection or maybe you just struggle to believe. Honestly, I've been here. Maybe you struggle to believe that there is a heaven or a God at all, right? And here's something, honestly, this is one of the biggest things that I've struggled with. I think a lot of you probably struggle with it. Some of you listening are probably Christians and you still struggle with this is you go, I just don't understand how can there be a good God if bad things happen, right? And you go, that's the part I struggle with. Like, how can there be a good God that allows bad things to happen? And I spent years struggling with that question. And if that's you, I'll just share a short little note on this one. One thing you should know right up front is that Christians, to be a Christian, Christians are not people who believe that bad things shouldn't happen to good people. That's not what it means to be Christian. Christians are not people who think that bad things shouldn't happen to good people. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Christians believe that the worst thing, death by crucifixion, asphyxiation, having nails driven into a man's wrist to be tortured, the worst thing happened to the best person. Jesus, the Christ, the son of God, God incarnate, the person without sin. That's what it means to be Christian. So just so you're clear on that, right? Some people go, well, I can't be a Christian because I struggle to believe that a good God would let bad things happen to good people. That's not what it means to be Christian. The opposite is true. Christians believe that the worst thing happened to the best person. Doesn't mean we like it. It just means we believe it. It means that our faith allows it and is hinged upon that idea. And Jesus himself said, okay, assuming for now that Jesus is real and assuming that the scriptures are accurate, which we'll we'll dive into, but Jesus himself said verbatim, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. He said that in John chapter 16, verse 33. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. So Christians, to be Christian doesn't mean you don't believe bad things happen. It is the opposite. It means you know bad things happen. You know bad things have happened, are happening, and will continue to happen for a while until we get to the end, which we'll explore and talk about. But that's John 16, 33. So if Jesus was real and his death was real and his resurrection is real, then we can presume that the things that he said are true. So Jesus, again, is the cornerstone of this whole conversation. And that's why we got to explore what basis and evidence is there for that. So perhaps that's part of what you don't believe that just that there's a heaven or a God at all. And how could that be if if it's a good God and, and yet bad things happen? Or perhaps maybe you're just like me. And for a lot of my life, I just said, you know, I'm just not what sure to make of it all. 
it's hard to believe. And I just, everyone has a different opinion. And, you know, this church, what, you know, this church says that, and this church says that, and these people presume to, to say they love people, but then they hate everybody and they, they're mean to people. And I look at Christians and I go, I don't know, I want to live like them. Or, you know, you hear about pastors, priests, right? You know, the whole thing about the Catholic priests and you go, well, I certainly don't want to be like those people, you know, molesting children while they're running a church. Like, and you go, look, I mean, I get it. I, I, that it's horrific. Right. So you, you know, but what I would say is don't look at Christians to learn about Christianity. Don't look at Christians to learn about Christianity. Look at Christ to learn about Christianity. And in order to look at Christ, we have to look at scripture. We have to look at what was written about him and what was documented about what he said. Don't look at Christians to learn about Christianity. Look at Christ to learn about Christianity. So we're going to do that. And also it's like, I want evidence. I want evidence. I want, where's the evidence of this? Not just, oh, it's it was written in a book a long time ago, so it must be true. How do we know? And that's what we're going to explore. It also needs to reconcile with common sense for me, right? And I go, hey, you know, I struggle to believe a dude rose from the dead. So like, how do I get past that? We're going to explore that. That's going to be one of the questions we look at. So I want to examine the writings. I want to examine these teachings. I want to examine this historical documentation against also my own life lessons, like the things that I've learned and experienced. How does this apply to me? And does this fit in with my own intuition? Because there is certainly an element of intuition and faith and emotion. And I go, I do want to find things that align. I would caution you there though, to go, at least for me, I put the least amount of weight on that part of going, I have to like it or believe it, or have to. it has to reconcile with my own reality. Just because my opinion has changed on things over time, even in my own life. There's things that I've never seen, but I do believe they've happened, right? I've never personally witnessed the genocide, the hatred of genocide in concentration camps, but just because I've never seen it doesn't mean I don't believe it happened. I, I believe it did happen. There's well-documented evidence to support the fact that it it did occur and it took place, and that's what I'm looking at. So one overall just humble request for you as we get into this is... I just want you to consider going through this whole series, this whole recount. And if you find one thing that's hard to believe, just sort of table it. Don't throw out everything because there's one thing that's hard to believe. Just sort of like identify it and go, yeah, I still have issues with this one piece, but keep moving forward. What I have found on this journey, there's been times where I go, yeah, I struggle with this, but then the more I would go, okay, let me just keep going. I table it and then I come back to it. I have actually found that there's really good evidence one way or the other to believe or not believe if you just go back and explore it, but you don't have to throw everything out if there's one little piece, just sort of document it, capture it, you know, or note it in your brain and set it aside and keep moving forward. But at least on this journey for me, everything that I've initially been skeptical of I've later gone back and investigated in detail and I've just, I have found satisfactory evidence once I dove into it. And so I'm going to try to share a lot of that with you here in this series, but I can't cover everything there is to know, right? So just note it. Don't judge yourself for having it, right? Not good or don't throw everything out, but also don't make yourself feel bad because you don't believe it. Just sort of grab it, table it, isolate it, table it, and come back to it later. So what are the seven questions of this series? So let's give you that overview. The seven questions that I'm going to address are the ones that I've gone down in my own life journey to discover truth. And those are the outline for this, whatever this is, this series. I don't know if this is going to be a book one day or just a podcast series or YouTube videos. I literally don't even know what this is. I just feel called to share it. So I'm producing it 
with a microphone and a video camera the best way I know how while I figure out what this is going to be. So question number one is, what's your strategy for death? And is it worth the time to explore eternity, right? So we're on this one right now. So, hey, congratulations. You're almost you're almost already done with one of the seven. Question number two is, was Jesus a real person? Simple as that. And maybe you already believe Jesus was a real person, but I would even challenge you to go, how do you know? Why do you believe Jesus was a real person? Just because 2 billion people said he was? What actual evidence is there? So let's look at that and go, was Jesus a real person who walked the earth? How do we know? The third question is, was he just a good guy? Like, was he just a good teacher? Or was he something more? That's an important question because you might go, yeah, I believe that Jesus was real. And, you know, I believe that he was probably a wise teacher or a prophet or a good person. So we're going to explore that question and go, is that all he was or was he something more? Which then leads into question number four, which is what proof, if any, is there that Jesus is actually the son of God? That's a pretty preposterous thing to believe. If this is your first introduction to like Christianity and Jesus and heaven or spirituality, you might go, a human is God incarnate and the son of God. Like that's a pretty big idea that, you know, I've never had any experience whatsoever with that in my life. How could you possibly believe that's true? Like what evidence is there? Good question. Good question. And I say to that, amen. Good question. You're an intelligent skeptic, right? And I say, amen, let's, let's go, let's explore it. And then question number five, okay, you go, okay, well, maybe Jesus was all these things, but question number five, did he actually raise, rise from the dead? Raise from the dead, rise from the dead. I don't know what the proper English is here. These are one of my discrepancies, right? Don't throw it all out. Did he actually rise from the dead? And how do we know that? Who said that? And how on earth could you believe that somebody died and was buried and then was like dead for a few days and then suddenly was walking around? What? So good question. Let's explore that. Question number six is, how do I get into heaven? According to the Christian faith, remember I, I said earlier, I said that you know one thing about Christian Christianity, you can say a lot of things good or bad about Christianity, but one thing you can't say is that it's unclear. Christianity is crystal clear about exactly what it takes to get into heaven. Now, you may not agree with it. You may not like it, but it's clear. So what is the answer? We're going to explore that in question six. How do I get into heaven? What exactly does it take to officially get the heaven card, right? Like, how do you get in? We'll look at that. And then number seven, which is one of the most important questions, which I think not enough people talk about or explore. And even after years of being a Christian, I had never explored this. What is heaven actually like? So if you do come around to believe in all this, and then you do come around to believe in how to get into heaven, and let's say that all is true theoretically, for now. And you say, okay, well then what? So when you get into heaven, what happens in heaven? Are we just sitting around on clouds playing harps all day and singing songs or like, is there more to it? And the truth is it's way more exciting. I'll, I'll use the word exciting. I hope that's not unholy to say. I'll, I'll say it's way more exciting than that vision, which was like the vision I had in my mind from movies or whatever. But when I actually read what scripture says about heaven, what it is like, but it's sort of hard to find. It's all over the place in the Bible. And the Bible's a really big book. It's really a set of books. 
So I'm going to distill that down and go, okay, well, what exactly is heaven? Like, is it clouds? Do we have wings? Are we flying around? Like, what's that? What is it? And and so I'll, I will also distill that down for you and share my exploration of, of what heaven is. So now as we transition and get into this exploration, I want to first give you, you first got to understand some basics of what the Bible is, because as I have said clearly, the Bible is my source of truth here for what Christianity is, not what churches say, not what doctrines, not denominations, not pastors, not songs. My source of truth, which you you are welcome to hold me accountable to, is which is something you also have access to, is the Bible itself, right? So that is what I'm putting out there is like, this is the backstop. So what exactly is the Bible? And if you're new to the Bible, just the concept itself can be super confusing. So let me just like lay it out because you're going to need to understand some just basics and fundamentals here in order for us to even go through and have this conversation. I'm so honored that you are here. And I really hope that this Eternal Life podcast series is helpful to you and your loved ones. On that note, can I ask a quick favor? If you feel like it's appropriate, would you mind leaving me a rating and review on whatever platform it is that you use to listen to this show? That really helps get the word out about this so that we can reach more people with this information. And it helps people decide if this is something they should really take the time to get into. Relatedly, I also want to encourage you to share this episode or this entire series with anyone who you think might enjoy it. Obviously, it's totally free, but it's our prayer that God would use this series to reach a lot of people because we know there's a lot of people out there who struggle with doubt and skepticism, and I know what that's like. And I also know what it's like to experience the deep peace and fulfillment that comes from having completed all of this research. So if you don't mind, just visit the main listing of this series in whatever app you're using to listen to it and leave us a rating and review, and then just hit the share button and send this out to anyone in your life who you think might benefit from it. Thanks so much. The other thing is I want to simplify some of the language around the Bible and around Christianity and spirituality in heaven, because I found there's all these, I call them churchy terms. There's all these churchy terms that make it hard to follow, right? Like salvation and sanctification and these words that are like, what is that? Like, what does that even mean? Salvation or sanctification. It's kind of like, I have this problem with other words in the English language, by the way. I'll tell you one of them. It's charcuterie. Charcuterie is one of the most confusing words. I think it's one of the most confusing words in the English language. Like you go, you do want some charcuterie? And people are like, what is that? I don't know what charcuterie is. But then you see a charcuterie board and you go, what? It's meat and cheese and nuts and fruit. And like, this is amazing. Like, why didn't you say that? You know, but you say charcuterie and you go, I don't know what that is. It doesn't seem that exciting. So first of all, how to navigate the Bible And you're going to want to know this just so you can look stuff up yourself and you can go read it for yourself and see if your interpretation is the same as mine, because I want you to look at the source of truth. I don't want me to be your source of truth. I want the Bible to be the source of truth for all of us. So, you know, if you've never looked at the Bible or, or even if you have, or you haven't in a while, I mean, let's be honest, like I've been a Christian and over 10 years went by where I hadn't even picked up my Bible. So that happens. So there's two major sections in the Bible. There's the Old Testament 
and the New Testament. Okay, so first of all, just it's divided in half conceptually, the Old Testament and the New Testament, but it's not really in half by quantity. The Old Testament is longer than half the Bible. The Old Testament is like two thirds, roughly, like if you're holding a Bible in your hand, right? So if I'm if I'm holding a Bible here in my hand, about two thirds of it is going to be the Old Testament. And then the last third is the New Testament, which is really the scriptures that document the life of Jesus. And it's from the people who knew Jesus and were around Jesus, which we'll, we'll talk about here in a second. Each section, Old Testament and New Testament, is comprised of books. They call them books. And each book typically is written by individual people. So i.e. the book of Matthew that's written by a man named Matthew. He was a tax collector. We'll learn about him more in just a second. But they're written in books, like the book of Matthew. And then each book is broken down into chapters, just like a normal book would be today, right? A book, you know, there's a book that is broken into chapters, but then each chapter is broken down into verses, which is basically like a sentence. I mean, you could think of it. It's not always exactly that way, but it's like basically like a sentence. So the reason that it's been chapter and versed is just so that it's easier to reference to because it, it's a big book, the Bible is, or a big set of books, more accurately to describe it. It's a couple thousand pages, depending on how big the font is, but it's usually at least a couple thousand pages or close to a thousand, couple thousand pages. You know, if you're trying to reference something in a conversation with someone, it's chapter and verse just so that you know exactly where to go to find it because it's it's a big body of work. So it's not that different. Like, I don't want you to be intimidated. I mean, some people, sometimes, honestly, like, let's just be real. Some of us get intimidated by the Bible. The book is huge. And it's the Old Testament, especially, is full of all sorts of weird language and crazy stories about war and people having affairs and murder. I mean, if you've never read the Old Testament, like, it's more exciting than any Hollywood movie you'll see. I mean, it is literally affairs and murder and betrayal and plagues and kings and battles and just, I mean, it's crazy. The stuff that's in the Old Testament, which also makes it a little bit hard to apply, I think, for most of us. The New Testament is much more relatable and it feels often more applicable if you're new to the Bible. But just like we would say it's in a book, in the book of Rory Vaden, right? So I mentioned my first book is Take the Stairs, right? So you'd say in the book, Take the Stairs by Rory Vaden, in chapter one, Near the end of the chapter, Rory teaches something called the rent axiom. He calls it the rent axiom. And Rory says, success is never owned. Success is only rented. And the rent is due every day, right? So that's the way it would sound today in a modern book. In the book, Take the Stairs by Rory Vaden, at the end of chapter one, towards the end, there's a verse called the rent axiom where Rory writes, success is never owned. It's rented and the rent is due every day. So I just want to make that parallel for you again, so that you don't get intimidated with the like, it's in Matthew chapter 16, verse 37. And, and you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. It's that simple. Also, I will include several references to places that I'm citing all throughout the Bible, just so you know where to look to read it for yourself. Um, you know, I've mentioned several times now that the source of truth for me is the Bible, not a pastor, not a church, not a religion, not rituals. It's the Bible itself. So, uh, and I would encourage you to not lean so heavily on other people to learn about Christianity. Go to the source, like go straight to the source, go to the Bible, go to the Bible right? No Christian can argue with what's in here. I mean, to be Christian means to believe what is in here. This is the source of truth. So you cannot argue with that. So don't take other people's word for it, including mine. Like, don't just take my word for it. Go look for it yourself. 
Now it's big and it can be hard to navigate and it doesn't answer questions in the order like this because of what it is. I'll explain that in a second. So hopefully the series will be valuable for you, regardless of whether or not you decide or continue to believe in Christ or if you decide not to, but go straight to the source and read the Bible. So I will include several scriptural references just so you know where I'm pulling from, right? So I, there's a lot of references to the Bible and I just, you are welcome to hold me accountable to being aligned with that. I want to have transparency around that. So let's talk about the New Testament first. So the New Testament is the last third of the Bible, approximately. And if you're new to the Bible and you're going to read it, I just want, I really, really, really want to encourage you to start reading the New Testament. Now, I know the like chronic overachieving taskmaster, you know, in you and the way you've ever read every book from your life is like, start at page one and read. But I just cannot emphasize enough, this is my personal opinion here, to read the start in the New Testament, which starts with the book of Matthew, and start reading there and then read to the end if you if you can read that much. Because it's the Old Testament, it's tricky. It's hard to follow, I think, in many ways. And there's a lot of lineage and history and a lot of detail that God provides in some of the books, like animal sacrifice, which is a part of the Old Testament. That's a part of the Old Covenant. We'll explain why that is and why Christians don't do animal sacrifice today. So we'll get into that. But I would really encourage you to, to read the New Testament. Now, what is the New Testament? The New Testament was written by people who were around during Jesus's life. So it is not a fiction book. Uh, again, it's a collection of books. They call them books. So it's not fiction books. It's not made up. These are, at least allegedly, these are historical accounts. They are records. They are people who lived when Jesus lived, people who walked where Jesus walked, people who saw, supposedly, saw Jesus live his life and documented the things that he did and the things that he said. That's at least the, the gospels. That's the first four books in the New Testament. So the whole New Testament is written either by people who were around Jesus and saw Jesus and like documented it, or they were people who knew the people who knew Jesus. So it's like, it's either like a first person testimony, like an eyewitness testimony, or it's like sort of like a second generation recount of what, let's say it was my great grandma, right? I go, I wasn't around or I wasn't old enough to witness my great grandma's life, but my mom was. And my mom told me about my great grandma. And so I'm writing stories about my great grandma, right? So it's like that. It's like, it's very, very close to the original source. It is not fiction. It's not supposed to be fiction. It's supposed to be nonfiction. It's supposed to be truth. It's supposed to be a documentation. Now, a question we will dive into more later is why were these books written in the first place? And that's a really big question, a really important question. You go, why did all these books, why did the New Testament get written in the first place? And the answer is because Several people, lots and lots of people believed that they saw a resurrected Jesus. They saw a man who was a carpenter, who was born a human, who people had known and walked with and ate with and lived with, and they knew a real person. And he said a bunch of stuff and did a bunch of stuff. And then that guy died. And then he came back to life and people saw him. 
And once they saw him, as you might imagine, as it probably would be to you, if you saw someone who was dead, you would probably freak out and you would probably tell people and you would probably would probably blow your mind and word would travel fast if it were real, right? Imagine how crazy it would be, like how fast it would spread on social media if there was a resurrected dead person and many people could go up and like talk to him or her and interact with them. Word would spread about that very, very fast. Well, that is what happened here. And that is why these texts exist. And then people documented them. And then as people started to believe in that, that that's what became the church, people who believed in these things, more people wanted to know about the life of Jesus. And so people started to teach on what he said. They started to relay what he said. And that's what makes up the New Testament. Okay, so let's dive into that a little bit. So the New Testament starts out with something called the gospel. The gospel is just the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they appear in that order. So gospel is just a fancy term or a churchy term for the first four books in the New Testament, the latter third of the Bible. Now, the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are known as the synoptic gospels. Again, fancy church term. It's a really simple concept. The synoptic gospels, they're the same stories in a similar sequence. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are documenting Jesus's life. And so because they're documenting his life, it's three different people who are all writing what they believed was the life of Jesus. And they're called synoptic because they corroborate with each other or they should corroborate with each other. If it's the same person's life, they should be saying the same thing, right? If you wrote a story about my life or your life, three different people who knew you or three different people who know me should be able to corroborate certain facts. There's things they would all know. They would all say, well, Rory had black hair. Well, one person might say that, but you wouldn't really know it's true if if there were other people who said, yeah, I knew Rory Vaden and he had black hair. And so you go, okay, well, we can presume that he had black hair because not just one person knew it, but like everybody who knew him said he had black hair and it was documented. So we go, oh, okay, well, we can all agree on that. That's the synoptic gospels. They're, they're people documenting the actual life of Jesus. The fourth gospel, which is the gospel of John, which is written by John, is distinct and we'll explain why that is. So that's the gospel, which is the first four books of the New Testament. Then are the epistles is another term you'll hear. Epistles. What are epistles? Epistles is another churchy term, another churchy term. And it's so easy to get lost in all these churchy terms. So again, being that I'm not a pastor, uh, you know, no offense to pastors or to the church or to churchy people. I am a churchy person. As somebody who is like not always a full wholehearted believer, it's easy to get lost in all these churchy terms. And so I'm, I'm trying to just debunk some of the churchy terms. So epistles is a churchy term. What are the epistles? Epistles are letters that were written to the early church or to the early believers. Okay. So the way that this goes down is Jesus lives. He does a bunch of miracles. People document it. He says he's going to die. He dies. He then rises from the dead. Just as he said, people document his life. Then he disappears. You know, at some point he completely leaves his resurrected body disappears. And so then people start writing and sharing the story of what happened. And so people start to believe 
and, and start to ask questions about who was he and what did he say and what did he mean by that? And so the people who were closest to him, often referred to as the disciples, the disciples and other people who were involved in that early movement of believers started to teach on what Jesus said and started to like try to bring more clarity to what was written and to what he taught and the words he said. And they would write letters to other groups of believers, right? So it'd be like, for example, the church of Ephesus, Ephesians. There's So one of the epistles is Ephesians. That is a book that is written to a church, not a building. Meaning when, when you hear the church in biblical sense, it usually means a group of people, a group of believers, which is really what the word church is. is church is not a building. A church is a group of people who believe something. So the church in Ephesus, meaning the group of people in Ephesus who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, a letter was written to them by Paul. He's interpreting and guiding them in the spirit of God. And basically what Paul knows to be true about Jesus and his encounter with Jesus and his encounter with the disciples. And he's being led by the Holy Spirit to instruct the church about what it means to be a Christian. And that he wrote a letter. It wasn't actually a book. It was a letter, right? There weren't, I don't think maybe there were books. I don't know about that. That would be a historical fact. I'm not super clear on, but he didn't really write a book. It was a letter that he wrote. He sent to the believers in Ephesus and that is called Ephesians. And that is one of the epistles. So all of these letters to the church make up the epistles. It'd be like, you know, I live in Nashville. So it'd be like Nashvillian, which is the book of Nashvillian written by somebody who wrote a letter to all the believers in Nashville. It's like that. Okay. So that's the epistles. So that's the New Testament. Now let's talk about the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is the first two thirds of the Bible. Again, I highly recommend that you skip over it like entirely the first time you read it. Like if you've never read the Bible, I would encourage you to just like skip over it entirely. Other people may not give you that advice, but that'd be my advice. It's ancient history. The Old Testament is ancient law. It is also ancient prophecy about a coming Messiah. Okay, because this is written before Jesus. That's what makes it the Old Testament. It's written many, many years before Jesus, like hundreds of years, thousands of years before Jesus arrives. And it was written to Jewish people telling them about the Messiah that would one day come. Okay. So, and then by the way, there's a 400 year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, meaning all of the books of the Old Testament were written. And then there's a 400 year break in history where there is nothing written until the book of Matthew, which is written after Jesus comes and dies and resurrects, and then the book of Matthew, and that becomes the New Testament. But the Old Testament, it's got lots of detailed specific rules about how God's people, which are Jews, the Jewish people, about how they had to live back then in order to have a relationship with him. So if you have a perfect God and imperfect people, there's all of these practices that they had to go through to sort of cleanse themselves to even just be in the presence of God. God created these people. He wants to be with people. God created mankind. He loves mankind. He wants to be with us, but he can't be in the presence of sin. A perfect God can't be in the presence of sin. And so there's all these like regulations and all these practices, including animal sacrifice that has to take place 
so that people could basically be cleansed in order to be in the presence of God. There are approximately, although this is not unanimously agreed upon, but it's pretty widely accepted, there are approximately 613 laws in the Old Testament. And by the way, the word testament is an old English word that really means covenant. Or a more modern word for it would be agreement. So it's like an agreement between two parties. So when you hear the phrase, the Old Testament, what you should really think is the Old Covenant, or really more simply, the Old Agreement, meaning the agreement before Jesus, which is exactly what it was. It was the original agreement or the Old Agreement. It was 613 laws that you needed to abide by in order to be holy. And it's all based on this sacrificial system. But Jesus comes and he explodes and he erases all of those rules. At least if you're a Christian, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what you believe. In Matthew 22, 36, okay, so this is right out of the gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 22, 36, a Pharisee, which means a Pharisee was someone who was an expert in Old Covenant Jewish law, or basically someone who was an expert in the Old Testament. They, they knew it inside and out. They were the people who interpreted it for everybody, right? So in Matthew 22, 36, one of the Pharisees asks Jesus, so this is a recorded encounter. This Pharisee asks, and this is verbatim, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So meaning the Old Testament, right? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Bam. So what happened there? What happened, what you just heard was Jesus basically blowing up 613 laws of ancient scripture and boiling it down into two, which is basically love God and love others. And that's it, right? And so he's like, which is good for people like me, right? If you go, man, I can't memorize 613 laws. I don't even know the 10 commandments, right? Like, how am I gonna, uh, there's no way if I have to abide by 613 laws to get into heaven. I mean, I literally can't even remember the 10 commandments, let alone abide by them. There's no way I'm getting in, right? And Jesus just goes, basically, he's not saying forget all of it, but you could kind of think of it that way. He's just saying, love God, love others. Bam, that's it. And then in John 13, 34, he says, Jesus, this is Jesus talking, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. And so it was just like that, that Jesus boiled it down to those two things. So what is the Old Testament? Okay, the Old Testament is 39 books. Okay, so there's 39 books that describe God's covenant relationship or agreement with Jewish, like with the Jews, with his, with God's people. So the first five books of the Old Testament are called the Torah, okay? Also known as the Pentateuch. 
These are deeply sacred manuscripts that contain dozens of writings that are essential to the Jewish community. Okay. So in a historical context, rather than a spiritual context, it's referred to as the Pentateuch, right? But sort of spiritually, at least as I understand it, it's really referred, it's really, it's the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And as I understand it, so some of these ancient scrolls that contain the text of the Torah were found in the caves of, okay, and I hope I pronounce this right, Qumran, and this was the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, so the Dead Sea Scrolls were found between 1946 and 1956. Okay, that's when they were found, but they've been dated all the way back as far as 300 BC, so before Christ, to 100 AD, Anno Domino, or after the day of our Lord, so after Jesus's death. And they're the oldest surviving copies of the Torah. So they representing 225 sections of original biblical text. That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls, that finding was so important to history was that there was an archaeological recovery and discovery of a huge amount of the like some of the original texts of the Hebrew Bible, you know, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, which are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Again, I would encourage you, do not read these five first if you're a beginner. It's sort of like showing up for elementary school on your first day and trying to learn astrophysics or calculus or something. So other than the creation story of Genesis, which is, I think, really interesting, and Genesis is really interesting, but it's also likely to probably present more questions than it answers for you. It just feels far away, at least to me, from our current life. And it, other than the prophecy, it doesn't speak so specifically other than prophecies, it doesn't speak so specifically to the life of Jesus. That doesn't happen until the New Testament when people start writing down what they saw and what happened and what they say that Jesus said. But there's kind of this consistent pattern to the Old Testament, just so you understand high level. It's sort of like God wants to be with his people, but God is perfect and people have sin and make mistakes. And so God gives them these laws that they're supposed to try to follow and then they screw up. And then a penalty has to be paid. A sacrifice basically has to be made. And so that was what created this sacrificial system of animals. They would sacrifice animals to cover their sins. This is, if you've ever heard the word atonement, that's another churchy word, another churchy term, atonement, which is basically blood that pays for or blood that covers a sin that was made to sort of erase the sin. So animal sacrifice happened blood was shed, it covered the sin, erased the sin so that humans could be back in the presence of God. God then forgives the people based on their promise to be faithful. People are good for a while. And then they typically fall back into some type of a pattern of sin, most notably worshiping other gods, which is the number one thing that is not cool with God, right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me is the first commandment. I just cited it just a moment ago that Jesus boils it down. Love God. That is the number one commandment. It is the ultimate highest first thing. God should be number one in your life. And to not do that is a sin. And so that is number one. And so people struggled with that. They kept worshiping other gods and having other idols. And so anyways, the prophets of the Old Testament, the writers, they would talk about and prepare people for the coming of a Messiah, a Messiah who would basically be a permanent sacrifice that would permanently erase all sins of all humans for all of humanity. And that anyone who believed in him, their sins would be forgiven and they would have permanent residence with God. They would have permanent accessibility to God because 
the death of Jesus and the blood of Jesus covers the sin, right? So that is what the Old Testament, and it's you know can be tricky to follow, although it's exciting. There's a lot of really wild and crazy stories. They're really preparing and talking about a coming savior. And then the last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And then after the book of Malachi, there's 400 years of silence, meaning no prophetic record, meaning the people who wrote the Old Testament, these were prophets, meaning they were God-inspired. They were people who were in, inspired by God to write down these things. They basically had dreams. They wrote these things down. They documented them, and that became the Old Testament. Well, after Malachi, there's no other prophets. There's just 400 years of silence, and then Jesus shows up on the scene And that is what begs the question, is Jesus the Messiah or not? Which is one of the things that we will look at. But the Old Testament, you know, going back to something that Jesus said. So remember in Matthew 22, 36, at the very end, Jesus said, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So that's what Jesus said. Well, I want to point something out to you that I was a Christian for years and never knew this. The Old Testament used to be called the law and the prophets. So today it's called the Old Testament and the New Testament, but that's because there's a New Testament. Before there was a New Testament, it wasn't called the Old Testament because there was nothing else to compare it to. Originally, the Old Testament, which again is Old Covenant or Old Agreements, what it was actually called was the law and the prophets. And so when Jesus says that verbatim, he's literally verbatim saying all of the law and the prophets. In other words, all of the Old Testament, all of the 39 books you are aware of can be boiled down to these two commandments, love God and love others. So if you ever hear that term law and the prophets, which is used regularly in the New Testament, because when the New Testament writers were writing They didn't know they were writing something that would one day be called the New Testament. They were writing what they saw. All they were doing was documenting what they saw with their own eyes. And then later in the epistles, they were writing letters to other believers. They never got together and said, hey, let's write something called the New Testament. They weren't doing that. They were just writing history. So they didn't know it was the New Testament and they didn't refer to what we refer to now as the Old Testament as the Old Testament. It just used to be called the law and the prophets. So in the New Testament, you will see that term, the law and the prophets, and that is referring to the Old Testament, what we would now call Old Testament. So for centuries, only Jewish people cared about the law and the prophets, or in other words, the Old Testament. Only they cared about it. No other religions, no other people, no other civilizations cared about it. One, probably because they didn't have it. They didn't have access to it. It was God inspired. So not it wasn't like the whole world had it. Only the prophets were inspired and then they wrote it down and the Jewish people had it. But the other reason was because nobody cared. Other people who were not Jews didn't care about the Old Testament or the law and the prophets. They didn't have a reason to care. And they really probably didn't want to care because it was 613 laws that they had to follow to be holy. And so who wants to wake up and go, yeah, I want to find 613 laws to live my life by? Nobody, right? Said nobody ever. (laughs) So they didn't want that. They didn't, and so they didn't care about it. But then something happened, right? And I can't blame them for that, right? I, I don't blame them for that. I don't think I would have either. But then something big happened. 
what happened that caused the whole world to care about the law and the prophets, now called the Old Testament? Why did the whole world go from not caring about it to suddenly caring about it and including it in every Bible that is pretty much ever written you know, or assembled? What happened was Jesus. Jesus came, Jesus died, and many people believed he was raised from the dead. And so when they saw him raised from the dead, people realized there was a whole set of ancient manuscripts, these 39 books, these prophetic writings, the law and the prophets, right, that wrote about a coming Messiah. And once people started to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they then wanted to go backwards in time to learn about him and go, oh, well, we want to know more about who this person was. And so then they started to care suddenly about these 39 books, which previously only mattered to Jewish people. It was written for Jews. It was their identity. It was their culture. And they had it right all along. And nobody else really paid attention until after Jesus. And that's an important fact that we'll come back to later. That's a little bit of an overview of the Bible itself. If you don't know much about the Bible or you're new to it or you have forgotten, or frankly, like I said, I had been a Christian for years and years and years and not known half of the things that I just shared here in this opening question. So the Bible is the source of truth for this series. And it is the thing you are welcome to invite and hold me. You're invited to hold me accountable to for the references about what it means to be Christian. Now, in this series, there's going to be other places that I am pulling historical information from, which is not the Bible because the Bible wasn't, the writers of the Bible weren't evaluating how accurately it was. They were just writing what they saw. So there are other places that we have to go look to find archaeological evidence and academic support and to look at historical scrutiny of these texts. And so there's other places, other places that I will cite. And one of them that is going to be huge all throughout, I would be remiss if I did not mention this, is that much of the historical references and documentations come out of this book, The Case for Christ. So The Case for Christ is written by Lee Strobel, who was a journalist. And I kind of gathered that Lee Strobel went on a journey not that dissimilar to what I have gone on. The subtitle of the book is A Journalist's Personal Investigation of the Evidence of Jesus. This book was really important to me. I've read several books and have explored this in many different ways, but this particular book was really important to me in understanding the evidence for the life of Jesus. And so I'm going to refer several times to this. And he also cites in here other original sources as well. So I just want to make sure I mention that, that a lot of the historical information comes from the case for Christ. One other source that I must mention right up front here is actually it is a sermon series that was done and delivered by Pastor Andy Stanley. So Andy Stanley is a pastor. He started, you know, has a big church in like the Atlanta, Georgia area. And he did a series called The Bible for Grownups. And in this series, The Bible for Grownups, Andy is the the series isn't so much about Jesus. And it's not so much about what is written in the Bible. It's a series about the Bible itself and how the Bible came to exist 
and where the Bible comes from and why, what books are in the Bible, made it into the Bible and sort of like the history of the Bible. Again, I, I want to be forthcoming and transparent that a lot of what I'm sharing on the historical components of the compilation of the Bible itself comes from that series, The Bible for Grownups by Andy Stanley. So he has an app called Your Move. It's a free app. I would encourage you to go download that and then watch that series for yourself. It was transformational for me. It helped piece together a lot of the open parts of the puzzle that I was trying to assemble for my own life. So I am obviously repurposing a lot of this into my own journey, but those are two sources that I wanted to mention up front, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel and The Bible for Grown Up, which is a series, a TV series, like a show, a video series by Andy Stanley. So what's the conclusion to question number one? The journey we're on here is seven questions every intelligent skeptic should ask themselves about Jesus of Nazareth. And the first question is, what is your strategy for overcoming death? What is your strategy for defeating death? And is it worth spending a little time exploring that? So hopefully, if you're still here by now, you will have come to the conclusion that it's worth a little bit of time to learn about this, right? If your eternity is on the line, if your chance to be reunited with people that you love, if your chance to never be separated from the relationships that you hold most dear, if the opportunity for a source of truth by which you can live your life by and have clarity for how the world operates and why and what are the the ways you can live that will bring you more fulfillment and joy and satisfaction and peace, if those things are potentially available for you, or even if it's just a matter of getting a chance to be clear on what Christianity is and what it means to be Christian so that you can decide not to believe in any of it. But for any and for all of those reasons, I hope you can arrive at the conclusion that it is worth a little bit of time to learn about this. In my time on this planet, I have explored many things. I have searched for answers to many questions. And for me personally, I have only found one answer that is consistent, that is documented, that is researched, and that is well-evidenced for reliable answers to what happens after death, how do you access eternity, who gets into eternity, and what is eternity like. And all of that comes down to this person named Jesus. Jesus, many call the Christ. Jesus the Messiah, but first, historically speaking, Jesus of Nazareth. So let's dive in and take a look at if he really walked the earth and what he's all about. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Eternal Life, seven questions every intelligent skeptic should ask about Jesus of Nazareth. As I've mentioned a few times, I'm not a pastor or leader of any religious organization of any kind. But if you are curious to get to know a bit more about me and the professional work that I do as an author, strategist, and speaker, you can head over to RoryVadenBlog.com. There you will get access to lots of free training resources for business people. I co-host a business podcast also 
with my wife and business partner, AJ. And we have a personal brand strategy firm that we run together. And I also release new free trainings every week on the psychology of growing your influence, all of which you can learn more about at RoryVadenBlog.com. I'll see you next time.